So we're going to read today in Matthew 14 a very familiar passage, and that is the passage of the feeding of the 5,000. So I encourage you to turn there, Matthew 14. We'll begin in verse number 13. We'll read down through verse number 21. Matthew 14, beginning in verse number 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he said a blessing, then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Let's pause for prayer before we go on this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Day that you have made, that we have great reason to rejoice and be glad. Lord, we look in this passage and we see not only a miracle, but we see so much about you, Lord Jesus, about your character, about your nature. We see the way you interacted and reacted to people in a difficult situation. We see your love and compassion and your mercy. We see your provision and your sufficiency, Lord, and all these things are things we need severely. So I pray that as we look at this passage, even though it's so familiar to us, the story of one of your miracles may become fresh in our eyes. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate our understanding so that we can see ways to apply this and follow the Lord Jesus day in and day out. And would you help all of us now? Even now, because it's warm, Lord, I admit, I get distracted. And I need your help. Be with us now as we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as a young boy who grew up in church and was in that church every time the doors were open, at least it seemed that way, there are particular memories that come back to mind and uh, they sort of have a nostalgic aura to them. And I have to be honest that studying this passage over the last couple of weeks has been one of those moments that's brought some of those feelings back. Because growing up in Sunday school, there are particular memories that I have that for some reason are just burned into my mind. I can picture the classroom, my teacher, my friends, the snacks, the, the flannel board. Most of you know what that is, some of you don't. And, uh, and this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is one of those miracles, and one of those stories that is burned into my memory from those Sunday school days. And maybe you have some of those memories. And maybe you have a, a most memorable miracle of Jesus if you grew up in church. If you didn't, well, then you can begin to make those memories now as you read through the scriptures. But one of the reasons, as I studied, that I saw why this account is so familiar and maybe so often repeated, is that the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four gospel records. 
and it's recorded in amazing agreement. All the writers provide a detail or several details that the others don't, but they all provide the core details, and where they do, they are exactly the same. I guess we could say that the gospel writers, those apostles who were there at that time, had this story burned into their memory as well. And it is very memorable. It's really the first miracle that Jesus does that touches a whole multitude, thousands of people at one time. And it's not simply memorable because it's vast. It's also marvelous in the truest sense of the word. Any of you who do any cooking or preparing food at all know that preparing food for a large amount of people is no small feat. Sometimes I speak of my grandmother on my mother's side. She was in food service, managed a restaurant for most of her working life, and she loved to cook for people. She still does. You've probably heard me talk about uh, the famous Christmas breakfast where at least 40 of us gather in my grandparents' basement every Christmas morning, and she has made a meal in the wee hours of the morning and the night before. My grandmother still does the lion's share of the work preparing a meal for all those people. And uh, I don't cook often. When I do, it's just because it's something I want to try. And I've never cooked for hundreds of people, that's for sure. But I've seen the preparation that goes into it, the hours of labor. Maybe you've been involved in, in a restaurant or working at catering, and you've taken part in feeding a large group of people and know that it's, it's more than just organization skills. It's actual hard work. But here we read this account where Jesus and his disciples, who are Humanly speaking, relatively unprepared, successfully feed thousands of people to the point of satisfaction and fullness and end up with enough leftovers to feed another small crowd afterward. We read that story. We saw the details there. And what we see in this story is that the feeding of the 5,000 shows us Christ's compassion, but it also shows us how he works through means to miraculously provide for what cannot otherwise be done. And that's kind of the big idea that we want to hold on to as we walk through this passage. We want to get some of the, the, the main details of the story, see what makes up the background, and then hold on to your outline because we will get to that, but it's going to be a few minutes, I'll warn you. So uh, this is all introduction still, just forewarning. Um, We've come out of another teaching section on Matthew, as I mentioned, the parables of the kingdom. And now we're into narrative again. Last week, as I said, Matt did a great job looking at the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth and the death of John the Baptist. Well, in chapter 14, if you remember what you read last week, verses 3 through 12 are really kind of a parenthesis. And what I mean by that is that Matthew inserts the story of John's death into the narrative here, not because it happened right at that time, but because it was relevant to what was going on. Specifically, it was relevant to Herod's thoughts about Jesus. If you look back at Matthew 14, verse 1, it says, Herod, at that time, the Tetrarch, learned about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. Herod had heard about Jesus. He was certain that Jesus was actually John the Baptist raised from the dead. And that was troubling because, remember, he had just had John the Baptist personally beheaded for the sake of his wife, who really was his brother Philip's wife. So if John was back, Herod was probably thinking, A, how did this happen? And B, 
I need to put an end to this. Interestingly, later in Matthew, we'll find that Herod was not the only one to think that Jesus was actually John the Baptist. Anyways, when Jesus heard that Herod was thinking about that he was John, Jesus departed. And that's where we pick up the story in verse number 13. We'll read it again just to get us back on track. Matthew 14, verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, in other words, when he heard that Herod was thinking that he was actually John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when Jesus left this region, he would be leaving the region near his home, his home base in Nazareth. He would be going across the Sea of Galilee to a town we learn in the other gospel records called Bethsaida, which interestingly was out of Herod's ruling area and into Philip, his brother's ruling area. So Jesus was essentially moving away from the controversy. Nothing wrong with that. I probably would too. He wanted to come alone by himself. He wanted to depart, to be by himself, to rest. He had over and over again ministered to crowds and crowds of people. Over and over again, he had taught and healed and taught and healed. We've seen that pattern over and over again in Matthew. And surely, as a real man, remember, Jesus is truly man and truly God. But as a real man, he did grow physically and mentally weird. Mark and Luke, to add some detail, also tell us that this wasn't long after Jesus had sent his disciples out on their mission. And in Mark, we read that Jesus calls them to come with him to this desolate place to rest for a while. Jesus recognized that they all needed rest. They all needed a time for recharging, a, a time to, to come away, as often has been said, sometimes you need to come away before you come apart, right? But as soon as they begin their plan of respite, the crowds have other ideas. It says in the end of verse 13, when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. We find that those who were with him and others who heard by word of mouth, they hook it to the place where Jesus and his disciples would get out of the boat. And when they get there, they're met with a multitude of people. So much for their rest, right? And as I was thinking about this, we could pause here and ask, how would any normal person respond to this kind of disruption? Uh, we all know that feeling. You sit down after a long day after dinner, you sit down with a good book or a television show or just to, to, to talk with your family, and then out of the blue, the phone rings or somebody knocks on the door, and all you're thinking is, that you have just waited until tomorrow. You're just ready for rest. It's not that you hate the person, it's not that you don't want to interact with them, it's just at that moment you need some rest. And it's okay to admit that. All of us have those moments where we just need some rest. And if this were the case, if we had gone away to rest, gone away for a day of respite, and found out that there was more work to do there than there was at home, we might be frustrated. But as we read, Jesus didn't respond this way. Even though he was tired and weary, and possibly trying to escape the anger of Herod, he still had compassion. Verse 14 says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, Healed their sick. But we aren't told how many were sick. But in a crowd this large, in a time where medical science wasn't where it is now, there were no doubt many who were sick. 
In Luke's account of this story, he tells us that he cured those who had need of healing, which doesn't qualify the number at all, but it does mean that he healed everyone in that crowd who needed healing. Now, Jesus perhaps could have done the celebrity thing. He could have gotten off the boat, given a wave, a little bit of a speech, maybe healed one or two people as a token, and then taken off to rest. But he didn't. He saved. He had compassion. He healed them. It's very similar to something we read in Matthew 9. Uh, at another time when Jesus was met with a large crowd, Matthew reports that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then again in Mark, where Mark reports this story of the feeding of the multitude, he says, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So not only did he heal all the people there who needed healing, but he also began to teach them many things. Now we are told what he taught them here. Probably things that we have already read in Matthew. There's no reason to believe that Jesus had had countless teachings that we don't know about, more than likely he repeated himself like a good teacher so that what he, could be, what he said could be remembered and digested and retaught. Now whatever he taught and however many people he healed, it apparently took the lion's share of the day because in verse 15 we find out that it's now the end of the day. It's evening. Maybe not quite dark or dusk yet, but it's at least dinner time. And we know that because the disciples say to him, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. It's time to eat, right? But let's think about it. These disciples are, are mostly young men. They're humans. They're also weary and tired, worn out from their own teaching, from their own ministry, worn out from following Jesus on this itinerant plan. And they were told by Jesus that they were coming over here to rest. Mark says that Jesus called them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And he says, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So the disciples and Jesus had been so busy in ministry that they hadn't even themselves had a chance to sit down and eat. And the disciples were probably thinking, these crowds are getting hungry because I'm getting hungry. My stomach is growling here. But we can also use a little bit of our imagination and think for a minute that maybe I might have been asking Jesus to send the crowds away also. I mean, come on, Jesus. We've been here all day. We came here to rest, and we haven't had any rest. Most of these people followed us from Nazareth. They've all been healed. They've all been taught. Can we just take a break? Pick it up, though, in verse number 16. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And here's the crisis moment of this whole story. And in my opinion, this is the emphasis of the gospel writers, as they all four record this. Now, the miracle is amazing, okay? They fed thousands of people. Jesus fed thousands of people with just a few pieces of food. The healings were amazing. The crowds were amazing. 
But this little detail right here is, I think, the big point of this story. Jesus said, you give them something. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it just like that. John records a little different part of the story. He records a, a direct conversation with Philip, where Jesus asked Philip, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? And the detail John gives after that is amazing because he said, Jesus said that to test them. He already knew what he was going to do. So Jesus said, you feed them. You give them something. They don't even leave. Feed them. Now they did consider their resources. Philip said, 200 denarii of bread isn't enough to give them even a little bit. Now whether they actually had 200 denarii with them or not, or whether he was just throwing out a number, basically that's the equivalent of 200 days wages for a common laborer. And if you think about it, if you had to feed 10,000 people, it would cost quite a bit, wouldn't it? Even if you had half a year's salary at a minimum wage job, you probably wouldn't be able to afford to give them something very good. And then we're told about the five loaves and the two fish. Now, Matthew's version of the story is the shortest, and we, we don't get the little detail about the little boy who brought his lunch, right? Uh, John records that to find out that's where the five loaves and the two fish come from. But that tells us something else, that not even the disciples had any food, because that's all they had were the five loaves and two fish from the little boy. So they had no food to give, not enough money to buy food, Yet Jesus said to them, you feed them. You feed them. Pick it up in verse 17. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Jesus said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were filled and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. So the rest of the story we just read there is the miracle. Jesus takes this, this meager meal. Five barley loaves, another writer records, and two fish. This was a boy's provision. It was just his lunch. And it was a poor boy's provision at that. Barley loaves and common fish were the food of commoners, the lower class. Yet Jesus took it and blessed it and broke it and gave it, and it was sufficient. Now there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from this story. We learn about Jesus' compassion, how he loves and heals and serves even when he himself is needing rest. We see his selflessness. The last time we saw Jesus in a desolate place where hunger was involved, he was in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days. And at that point, Jesus wouldn't even use his power to make bread for himself. But here, when he was again hungry, no doubt, he used his power to feed everyone else. Jesus is the compassionate, selfless, and self-giving one. 
There are also lessons to be learned from the context of this story, too. Just before this, again, we read of Herod Antipas' great birthday feast, which really we see as a feast of unrighteousness, a, a feast of self-gratification, a feast where a man had to lose his head in order to appease a wicked ruler and his wife. It was a feast that was meant to boast and impress and bring attention. But this feast is so humble, yet it's so much more profound. And also, it points to another great feast, because John tells us that this was just before the Passover celebration, where bread would once again be broken to remind the Israelites of the Lord's deliverance of them from death, from Egypt, and from slavery. But this feast in the wilderness would also remind the people of another time when the Lord fed his children in the wilderness. During the time of the Exodus, bread from heaven came down daily, and the people were fed without going hungry, even though they were in a desert place. And in fact, that tie is made directly in John's account, for right after this miracle, he records this conversation. Dennis read this earlier, but I want to, or Matt read this earlier, but I want to read it again. John 6, verse 28, following. They said to him, what must we be doing to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And then Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Not only do we see Jesus' compassion and his selfless love, we see his sufficiency as well. Sufficiency in his power and in his provision. That sufficiency is also shown in the story. Not only were people fed to the point of satisfaction, but there were a lot of leftovers as well. Twelve baskets, and the specific word is for large baskets. It's estimated that one of these baskets could hold enough bread for 25 to 50 people. Twelve baskets full of leftovers. Twelve baskets, maybe, for the twelve disciples who distributed the bread. Twelve baskets remind us again of the twelve tribes of Israel who were all fed in the wilderness before. It's almost as if God is teaching about his provision and sufficiency to his people in a symbolic way. Now, if you've been following along in the outline, you've noticed again that we haven't made it to the outline yet, which might make you nervous because of all that was introduction. How long is the rest of the sermon? Uh, without stretching us to the point where we need uh, bread to fall down from heaven to feed us, um, I do want to take the last portion of our time and bring out what I think is the main lessons from the story. And we see that in the need, the provision, and in the process. The need. There are layers of need 
in this story. Many people needed healing, and Jesus healed them. All the people needed teaching, and Jesus taught them. And it was at the end of a long day, and almost everyone there needed feeding. But I don't think the need of feeding was really that dire. Think about it with me for a moment. The people had walked to this place. Most of them were within a short journey of their homes. Even if they had been following Jesus for a couple days, which we aren't told that they were, we're not told that Jesus ever fed people before, so they weren't expecting a meal. In fact, the disciples were probably right that it would have been a reasonable thing to do to send them away so they could get dinner. They were hungry. But they weren't that hungry. I recently started reading a book detailing the story of the Donner Party. Without saying anything else, uh, I would say that they were probably not that hungry. They weren't starving. They were just hungry. It was the end of the day. So the greatest need here wasn't the hunger of the crowd. They could have gotten food at home. What became, however, the greatest need was the disciples' need. And what was that? When the disciples brought up the hunger of the crowd and they said, send them away so they can go find somewhere to sleep and something to eat, Jesus gave them that command. He said, you feed them. You feed them. And I would submit that in this passage, that the greatest need, as far as one being insurmountable, was actually the disciples' need to feed these people when they had no ability to do it. The Gospels, including Matthew, are primarily a story about Jesus, and second to Jesus are his interactions and teachings to his disciples. They're the main characters. And here in this story, they're the main characters again, Jesus and his disciples. He had just sent them out on a mission where they had taught and healed. They were both invigorated and exhausted. But here, he gives them a task that they cannot do. They don't have enough money to buy bread. They don't have enough money to give or bread to give the people. They don't even have any bread for themselves. We're told that there are 5,000 men plus women and children, safely we could say 10,000, perhaps even more, and they had been given a command by their master. And now they're going to handle What are they going to do? The hunger wasn't an insurmountable obstacle. Again, the people could have gotten food somewhere else. But the task that Jesus gave his disciples was. Within this is a great lesson about following the Lord is that often he calls us to do what is impossible. From the very first call, as John records it, to be born again, all the way through life and living, we are faced with challenges that we simply cannot overcome. The life of serving and following Jesus is not a life of our abilities being put on display. Rather, it's a life of our weaknesses being discovered and revealed Think of it, and it's been said often. Moses had a speech impediment, yet he was to be the, the leader of millions. 
Gideon was the least of his own family, yet he was to lead an army to destroy a whole host of Midianites in battle. David was just a small shepherd boy, yet he was to defeat the champion of the Philistine army and then go on to be the king over Israel. Now, the disciples were not Moses, Gideon, or David, and nor are you or I. But the disciples were called to an insurmountable task in that moment, and they were faced squarely with their inability to meet that need. The need we are all faced squarely with in following Jesus is that many times, in many situations, we cannot accomplish what needs to be done. We simply don't have the strength and resources to do it. It's not to say that we're worthless or that our abilities are nothing. They are useful, as we'll see even in this story. But they are not all sufficient. They are not all sufficient. So the need, the real need here, was for the disciples to feed these people. Then we see the provision. The disciples' great need that was created by the call of Jesus for you to feed them was met with the very sufficiency and provision of Jesus. We find here in the story that Jesus is that source of provision. Jesus took the bread and fish. He broke it. He blessed it. And he gave it. And he kept on giving it. He kept on breaking it. We're not told exactly how it happened. But as I imagine it, he kept on breaking and breaking and giving it and giving it. In every trip back to him with another basket, there was more to come. Provision upon provision. Every time the disciples would come back empty-handed, having given everything they had. But Jesus would be there with more bread to break. Jesus was the source. The bread wasn't miraculous. It was just meager barley loaves. The Lord was miraculous. Every time, inability and insufficiency is met with the miraculous provision and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of John 15, where Jesus gave a great teaching on the vine and the branches. And he called his disciples, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless, you abide, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That is the lesson that the disciples were learning here. They were tired, wanting a break, wanting to rest, wanting to send the crowds home. But they kept coming back to the source, to Jesus himself. And the provision continued. And this applies in so many ways. Spiritually, we must first come to Jesus as the source of life, the source of salvation. We are dead in sin, the scripture says. We are in need of a new birth, in need of new life. And only Jesus provides that. Only he provides the water which causes us to never thirst again. And only he is the bread of life which causes us to live forever. But as we follow him and seek to obey him, we realize that our own strength and ability falls short every day. Whether it's the strength to serve another person, to, to help a needy individual, to love your neighbor, to stand up for righteousness or truth, or, or simply the strength to fight sin and temptation, we are always falling short. Jesus is always providing. 
Every time we come back to him, hands empty, having given everything we have, he provides more and more and more. Strength for the weary, provision for the hungry, satisfaction for those who are thirsty. Finally, with me, though, process. There's a little detail that is given in Matthew, Mark, and John. And you can go back and read those passages, um, Mark 6, John 6, uh, Luke 9 as well. They all record these stories. But anyways, the detail is that there was grass in the place where they were gathered. Now that tells us something about the time of the year. It was the springtime. It was near the Passover, which John tells us. It was near the Passover. But it also paints a picture. Now, this picture is not original to me. I don't know who first sort of thought about it this way. But it's interesting and it's helpful. John tells us specifically that there was much grass in this place. The others told, tell us that Jesus told the people to, to sit down in the grass in groups of 50 or 100. Now what does it look like when people trample and sit down in tall grass? Well, it leaves an impression. It leaves a noticeable mark. Not only that, but Jesus organized, again, the whole crowd in groups. So picture this. After the events were over and all the people went home, you would have all these spots in the grass where people were sitting. They were totally flat and pressed down. And then standing out from these spots, you would have all these foot tracks of the disciples. And if you could have had a bird's eye view of this whole thing happening, you would see all these areas of service, groups of people that needed feeding, and all these well-worn footpaths that point back to one place, the place where Jesus was standing, breaking the bread that kept on coming until everyone was fed. And isn't that just a picture of life? If you are a believer, God has called you to obey and serve him. And your strength and obedience in service comes from the, the source, Christ himself. But the Lord also uses our abilities. After all, the disciples, they did find the five, the five loaves and two fish, although it probably seemed comical even to them to think of feeding that many people with that little food. And they did have the feet to walk. They were strong enough to carry the baskets. They did the work of distributing but every ounce of provision came right back to the source. The Lord works through means. We are here on earth to display God's truth and his glory, to serve him. He uses our gifts, our abilities, our talents. In fact, he, in fact, he gives us those things. But we are never self-sufficient. Without Christ in this moment, the disciples may have had 12 baskets and five loaves and two fish. They would have not have had food to feed the crowd. What is it that Christ is calling you to do? Is it to love your neighbor and to serve them? If so, then find that provision in him. Is it to love and lead in your family and in your home? Find that strength and provision in him. Is it to spread the gospel and tell others about Jesus? Find that strength and provision in him. 
is it to go across the world on mission? Find that strength in him. Whatever you do in life, in the name of Jesus, may there be a constant impression, the foot tracks of your life, coming back to him, day after day, moment after moment, to find what you truly need to follow him, to serve him. He will use you. He desires to use you. But he is the source. He is the provision. He is the miraculous one. The compassionate Lord. Who feeds his people. Who gives what we truly need. The bread from heaven. The water of love.